Welcome to Peacemakers, an interview-style podcast where you'll hear and learn from world changers, ministry leaders, creatives, and many others who are influencing change and bringing peace to those around them. We're so excited that you're tuning in. Here's your host, Jonathan Moya. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Peacemakers. I'm super excited today to have Karen Gonzalez and be in conversation with her. Karen is a speaker, a writer, and an immigrant advocate. She's also a taco enthusiast, which we'll talk about more later. She's an immigrant from Guatemala, and she's currently living in Baltimore, Maryland. She enjoys writing, cooking, traveling, and watching baseball, all in that order. Karen is a former public school teacher, and she attended Fuller Theological Seminary, where she studied theology and missiology. And for the last 10 years, she has been a nonprofit professional, and she currently works for an organization that serves immigrants and refugees. Karen is also debuting her new book, where she shares her own immigrant story and reflection on many immigrants found in the Bible. So without further ado, let's welcome Kieran Gonzalez. Welcome to the show, Kieran. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. It's great to finally speak to you after following you online and having Mm -hmm. interactions online. It's great to meet. Yes, I'm excited to be speaking with you too. And so I'm so glad that you get to share with us today. Uh, And also, I mean, really more exciting. I'm excited to talk with you more a little bit about your new book, uh, which is titled The God Who Sees Immigrants, the Bible and the Journey to belong. But before we dive into the serious part of that conversation, I want to talk a little bit more about your enthusiasm for tacos. <laughs> yes, because I think maybe I found my match. I think street tacos are the way to go. So tell me yes. a little bit more about that. Okay, so my favorite al pastor. Uh-huh. Those are my favorite. Okay. I just love that slow cooked pork meat mm, and it's yes. seasoned so well and it's kind of sweet and kind of savory. Oh man. And like those like homemade corn tortillas, my favorite oh. taqueria here is called Cocina Luchadoras. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they make homemade corn tortillas because flour tortillas are not real tacos. <laughs> yep. Yep. I have to agree. <laughs> so that's my favorite with the onion and the cilantro and a little bit of lime, yeah. a little bit of picante. <laughs> that's a staple here at my house, too. So every time we have people over, we'd like to treat them to just some good, authentic, you know, as best as we can, you know, because we're still in the Midwest and, and things like that. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing like homemade tortillas. And I say kind of like a mom used to make them, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So no, thanks for giving us a little bit of insight into that. I think that's a cuisine that's definitely, I think a lot of people love Taco Tuesday. And I think it's also like just Latin American food and kind of the flavors is full of, uh, of history and culture and flavors, right? And so it's super, super great to, to share that with many other people. But diving into a little bit more now into your story that I think is fascinating. And as, as we have this conversation, I want to unpack a little bit. What does life look like for you right now in Maryland? That's a great question. So life here in Maryland. Uh, so I I moved from California. I had been living in California for a few years after okay. I uh, finished seminary. And I moved here to Maryland because at the time, my brother and my sister-in-law were living here. And also my sister and her family live in Rhode Island, which is not that far away. Mm-hmm. But then my brother and his family uh now live in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they uh, they work for the State Department, and so wow. they uh, they they work at the embassy down there. So mm-hmm. 
So, but in general, I think life in Maryland is pretty good. We have the east part of the city in Baltimore, where that's where all the Latinos live and where all the great food is in the city. And Baltimore in general has a lot of struggles, you know, in terms of there's a high rate of poverty, there's a high crime rate, you know, it's, you know, famous even for that. And unfortunately, it's a fair uh, fair thing to be famous for because it, it, is, it is true. But overall, I really love the city. I think there's so much... Uh, diversity and cultural richness here. And my office is downtown and I work okay. for an organization called World Relief and mm-hmm. all of their domestic work is with foreign born people. Mm-hmm. And so we have a clinic right in the building where we serve um, immigrants with legal services and it's mm-hmm. very affordable um, and sometimes even free depending on the situation for the person. And so I'm really glad to be here and to be part of that work. Wow. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So is your time with World Relief, is that kind of what um, you focus primarily your time in and your energy towards? Or are there other things besides that as well? No, I do other things as well. Um, So I'm a part of of a church and... I made a, a conscious decision that I wanted to go to a church that was not predominantly white. And that's mm. not because I think there's something wrong <laughs> with churches that are yeah. predominantly white. But it was really important to me to hear the gospel from the margins and not from the dominant mm. society, because I believe the Bible was given to and written by people on the margins. Mm. And that's where most immigrants are as well. Yeah. And so I, I also preach at my church once a month, mm. and I'm involved in that community. Um, and, you know, I have friends and in the city that I'm also involved in. And so, yeah, so there's quite a bit of things that I do around, yeah. quite a bit of travel too, both for work and personally. And yeah. so... No, that's good. That That's great. I think, uh, you know, ministry is just kind of life, right? Like I think being involved in ministry, whether it's with an organization or the church, sometimes it, it goes beyond the nine to five for sure. Right. right. And so yeah. I think we're always wearing multiple hats no matter where, but we're also called to meet people where they're at as the body of Christ. And so I think that's the beauty of doing that. So I know you kind of started mentioning a little bit about your life and uh in in baltimore and what you do but uh, i'm a true believer that um how we grew up and where we grew up influences who we are today and and even so much of the projects that we're currently tackling so talk to me a little bit about that talk to me a little bit about your childhood and kind of how that was and maybe how that's you know shaped who you've become now Sure. Yeah. So I was born in Guatemala and I lived in Guatemala. Spanish was my first language Mm -hmm. and I lived there. That was my whole life until Mm -hmm. I was 10. And, you know, my parents, and this is something I I like to tell people, my parents were not people who were dreaming of immigrating. Mm -hmm. They were not drawn to the U.S. by the American dream. I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding around immigration and and, and the reasons that push people out of their countries. Mm. And for my parents, they loved living in their home country. You know, culture, for all intents and purposes, is our home, right? Mm-hmm. It's where we feel most comfortable. Yeah. And so my parents, they were happy to live in Guatemala. There was no plan at all to, to migrate, even though we had relatives here in the U.S. Mm. And uh, we came to visit 
when I was a really little girl, I was maybe seven and still no interest in, yeah. in migrating. And really what created the conditions for my family were uh, the civil war in Guatemala between, you know, um, socialist or, you know, communist uh, guerrillas and the military dictatorship that was in power. Wow. And it just really destabilized the economy. I became aware of what was going on. There was lots of people disappearing and yeah. dying. And I knew what was going on, even though I think my parents thought I was not aware mm. of what was happening. Yeah. Um, and so... At that point, we moved to California, and we lived there for about four years. And um, after my parents got their uh, green cards, because one of my uncles in the U.S. had become a U.S. citizen, and so he sponsored uh, my parents. And then we moved to uh, Florida, which is where I ended up growing up in Tampa Bay. Mm -hmm. And so my childhood was very much divided, 10 years in Guatemala, and then the rest of my childhood was spent in the U.S., you know, with that sort of learning English, learning a new culture, learning yeah. a new educational system. Um, so, yeah, it was very, very much divided. Um, and, of course, the, the language was a big deal, mm -hmm. uh, learning English and getting acclimated to living forever in a new environment. And so I still remember what it was like to live in Guatemala and the good life yeah. that we had there. Mm -hmm. so. Wow. Yeah. I can actually see some of the, some of the things that you're talking about, even in like what you're doing today, you know, like the community that you just described that you live around, you know, the church that you worship in and even, you know, the, just the, the professional work that you do. Right. And so there's just like narratives of all kind of like your childhood that what you just described that are playing into also uh, who you are today and what you're doing. And so I think, you know, when we kind of look at our life backwards, we start, you know, pinpointing all the different things that, that shape us, right. And that ultimately influence who, who we are. And so I think that's, I think there's just beauty in that. And I think there's, there's just a lot, you know, that we can be become aware about when we kind of look at our life, you know, from the whole story up until, up until now. And so uh, thanks, thanks for sharing that yeah. uh, as, so our podcast, right. is called peacemakers. You know, we, we really look for people that are making a difference, people that are influencing change to those around them. As I've been following your work, uh, you know, and I see you influencing those around you. I think you're, you're a perfect, you know, guest to have on, on the show because, you know, you're, you're debuting your new book, you know, and you're, you're out there speaking, you're preaching, you're doing immigrant work in the front lines. Like how does peacemaking look like for you in the space that you influence? Is that, does that come hard for you? Uh, do you ever feel vulnerable in that space or is it, does it come easy for you? No, I think it's, the work of peacekeeping is very easy work, mm, yes. <laughs> but the work of peacemaking is is really hard work, and it is vulnerable. And for me, it primarily comes in the sense of there's a lot of people in in my community who feel, you know, who have used the immigrant community as a scapegoat hmm. uh, for a lot of problems that are facing the U.S. Yeah. and like, you know, the economic situation, the job market, and even the changing face of Americans, which mm -hmm. is becoming browner and not as white. And that to me is not a problem. It's just a reality. And it's mm -hmm. a beautiful reality that, that people have to accept. And so for me, a lot of it comes in because, you know, as a documented immigrant, 
you would think that I had always been supportive of our community and Mm -hmm. always, you know, on their side. But honestly, as my immigration solution receded into the past, I was not supportive of the community, almost like this attitude. In my book, I call it shut the door behind me. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my family were the last good immigrants that came to the U.S., And I lost touch with so many people in the community who were immigrants and who were newer to the legal processes. And Mm -hmm. I understand what it's like Hmm. to feel disconnected from that community and to then be suspicious or, or look at them, you know, with a kind of, you know, I don't know, almost like a disgust, like what's Mm. happening here? Why are they here? And I really want to reach people not just our immigrant community and stand in solidarity with them and support them, but I also want other people. I want to reach out to other people who also need to learn and need to grow in their own, especially Christians, you know, Mm -hmm. who, who should be open um, to this message. And so, so a lot of what I do is I speak a lot on immigration Mm -hmm. um, in all kinds of different churches Mm -hmm. in order for people to understand that there's a biblical command to care for and welcome immigrants. Yeah. And not only that, but there's a mutuality of Mm -hmm. blessing. It's not just, Oh, we welcome them because we're so good and kind. It's we welcome them they bless us. They bring their families. Yeah. They bring their faith. They bring their talents, their mm. hard work. There's so much that immigrants give to this um, community. And I feel a lot of times, even in the church, for people who support immigrants, so often the message seems to be like, oh, welcome them, mm. as if we're doing them a favor and they're uh. not giving back to us. And so I like to also, when I talk about that, I use the story of Ruth and I talk about the mutuality of blessing. Mm. You know, Ruth blessed the community of Judah and they blessed mm. her too in receiving her. Yeah. So, Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think that that kind of leads into kind of your book as you started sharing about your book, the timing of it, you know, why was it important for you to write your story now? And especially, you know, right now, and, and, and as I was looking through, through your book, I think there's just a scriptural journey, you know, that I think uh, as people of faith, some of us are familiar with the stories, but maybe we're not familiar so much with like the angles of how you portray, how you, you know, portray your story and also the, the story of uh, people who were in transition, you know, and these characters that maybe we see them as heroic, but also it was people that were, that we're in transition. So mm-hmm. why write a book? Why now? Why about this? You know, I wrote the book in part because I kept running into books, uh, picking up books about immigration from a Christian perspective. And so few of them, I mean, I can think of two that are written by immigrants. Nearly all of them are written by people who love immigrants. And and there's nothing wrong with those books. But it's also important that we tell our own stories. Mm. We're not, we are actors in our own liberation we're not waiting, you know, for other people to come in and help us. And so I felt that that was important. And I had the, you know, good fortune to remember my immigration story mm-hmm. and and to be able to walk people through that journey that I took with my family. Because, yeah. you know, so many of us are brought in as babies or yeah. were born here to immigrant parents. And so I wanted to journey 
through that with people. And I wanted them to know, especially how hard it was Hmm. for my adult relatives. You know, to a certain extent, my brother and sister and I, we were able to become bicultural. Yeah. But for the adults in my family, that was not the case. They were working. They were not able to devote all their time to learning English. Mm -hmm. And they still live with a sort of melancholy and love for the old country, hmm. you know, and, and the the heartbreak of leaving your home and having to start over like yeah. a child in a new country. And so yeah. that's really what was the big driving force for me. And I prayed a lot about it before I entered into the process because it's, yeah. it's very difficult. I and it bet. is harder. It's harder to get published as a, as a person of color. Yeah. Um, so. Wow. Is that, was that something that surprised you about taking on this project? You know, it did and it probably shouldn't have, but Mm. I, I just thought, oh, publishers want to publish, uh, good stories, you Mm -hmm. know, and it doesn't matter where they come from, but it is a little bit harder because your network is smaller. Yeah. You know, you don't have as much access to, and I was very thankful for a lot of other uh, writers of color who shared their experiences and, and who told me, you know, gave me good counsel, good advice. Yeah. On how to forward. I have, um, as I was just, um, you know, looking through your book, like I said, I haven't read it completely, but there's some, some things that stood out. And in the opening statements of your book, you write that many encouraged you to hurry up and get your book to the market, right? Because it was, uh, it was critical at this political moment in time. And, but you also talk and reflect about how you were so grateful for people's affirmation, but you almost also push back on one aspect of their encouragement. And you write in your book, the story of belonging is always an important story. Story. Immigrant stories always matter because immigrants are image bearers of God. God alone endows us with value and dignity and centers our stories. As such, they are always important stories to tell, period, always, period. Mm-hmm. So talk to me more about that because if I, you know, I want to let you in into a little bit of that. There was a time in the last few years where, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, Christian church. My parents are pastors and I knew the biblical truth, right? We're created in God's image. But as a person of color and as an immigrant myself, I found myself fighting like, yes, I understand biblical, the biblical Uh, you know, understanding of that, but also like, I almost felt like there was this whole other side of culture that opposed that truth. And so I had to wrestle with that. Do you, did you find yourself kind of when that, because I, I felt, I feel like the church is, is, is more than ever becoming involved in this, but this has always been a conversation for many of us, right? To be honest, I think a lot of us internalize, you know, what we see in our culture is that there's less value for us. And mm. so we, we internalize that and sometimes we fight it, which is really good. And a lot of us are starting to do that. And mm-hmm. I, I love that, but I think a lot of us internalize, you know, I've talked to other immigrants. I remember talking to this woman at this, um, Franciscan retreat center and, you know, she was like me, she had brown skin and dark hair and, she, we happened to be sitting next to each other and I was asking her about her family and she's like, oh yeah, I have a son, but, um, think, but he's not, he doesn't look like me. He's not mm. ugly and dark. He's blonde and he's, you know, he has green eyes and she was so proud that her son didn't look like her. And mm. I said to her, I said, well, I think you're very beautiful. I think mm. I love your brown skin and your dark hair and your dark eyes. 
But I could tell she was surprised by that. And yeah. I feel to a certain degree, a lot of us have internalized those messages. And there's even, you know, overall in our communities, a sense of, you know, white, white is better, right? Mm. Or being, being native born is better. And for me, I had to really reject that message and, and because it's it's a kind of self-hatred, right? To say that what I'm not is better mm. in some way. And yeah. so when people would come at me with that, I would always thank them. Thank you for the encouragement because yeah. people mean well and have good intentions. Yeah. But I also wanted them to know, no, these stories are always important. Mm. Our stories matter and we're not guests here. We yeah. have built our lives in this country mm. and our stories matter yeah. just as much as other stories. And they, and always, right? Not just right now because we're being disparaged by the white gaze because mm -hmm. we have an administration that despises us. Mm -hmm. No, it's not just now. It's always. What do you think needs to change with, within the church so that stories, these conversations, people of color that are leading, you know, remain among, I, I think, valued and dignified and, and, you know, and to realize that God is also at the center of our stories. I, I think what needs to change in the church is we have to see ourselves as Christians first mm -hmm. and Americans second. Mm. And It is very clear that that's not the case right yeah. now, that a lot of people see themselves as Americans first. And mm. even the fact that, you know, it never fails. Every time I speak about immigration, I do a Q&A at the end, and there's always someone or several people who ask, well, what about obeying the law in Romans mm -hmm. 13? Yeah. And I always respond to them, like, whose laws are Christian obligated to obey first? Mm. God's or humankind's? You know, yeah. and the fact is... Even even if if you were to t feel like oh we're human laws come from God that's fine but we change our laws all the time our laws are not like God's they're they're amendable they yeah. can change them we can revoke them but God's mm. commands to love and welcome immigrants those are not laws that we can change <laughs> those yeah. are in fact infallible yeah. Uh, so, wow. What would you say is the role of the church in this time and how can the church step in and maybe do better at stepping in in our time right now? You know, uh, research shows that most people say their pastor has never talked about immigration as yeah. a biblical issue. Um, and so I think what's happening is that most Christians are getting their views on immigration. They either hold on to Romans 13 or they're getting it from the news, from their peers, from their families. Mm -hmm. They're not being informed by God and God's word about a biblical view of immigration. And so that's really a dangerous place. I think our yeah. churches have to preach about this. Any issue that concerns human beings mm. is a biblical issue mm. and it should be preached from the pulpit. Yeah. And so I think pastors need to be informed themselves better mm -hmm. and they need to preach about yeah. this topic from the pulpit in that even if they get resistance, at least they can start a conversation that they can follow up with a Bible mm. study or other, you know, other ways to address that in the church. But I feel like it's critical that our pastors start talking about this. Yeah.
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, as, as whether it's a, a pastor or nonprofit leaders, a youth pastor, I think we influence right uh, congregations. We influence groups of people, and so I think more than more than anything, and something that even I'm trying to tackle is just like how do we provide more resources? How do we engage people in educational learning opportunities so that they can, you know, shepherd well, you know, and maybe shepherd mm-hmm. from a holistic perspective of of the fact that throughout the entire Bible. You know, God is for all people, right? And so that's something just that's it's it's something hard, I think, to tackle. But I think the more I'm encouraged by the more and more people that I find doing it, and so I think that's something that I see you doing as well. And so, so thank you for, for your work. What do you think is a best tip to move forward? I think for someone struggling with an immigration conversation currently. You mean themselves struggling or with talking to other people about immigration? Um, I would say talking about with other people because I feel like we all have our own, you know, perceptions, our own uh, convictions. But I think sometimes... I think it, it becomes really tough to, to engage in dialogue with someone else, especially if that other person we know maybe uh, opposes like certain views that we have or opposes even, you know, or has different conviction. I've thought about this a lot because I encounter this all the time. And I think what we have to start is in acknowledging that we, we can't change anyone's mind, mm-hmm. that that's really a work of God's spirit to do that, you know, and that we have to, we have to do our part, but Mm -hmm. we also have to ask the spirit to do the part that's God's part. Yeah. Um, but I think along with that, there are some things we can do. I have never found it helpful to argue with people Hmm. and to, you know, I was sitting next to this couple in a coffee shop and they saw that I was, you know, reading a book about immigration and Mm -hmm. they asked me questions about it. And the first thing that they said was, well, I don't believe in open borders, so Mm. I just can't, you know. And I said, well, you know, actually, neither do I. (laughs) I said, I don't know any immigration advocates that are are, uh, wanting, you know, for there to be no borders anywhere. I said, most of us want a secure border Mm -hmm. that takes into consideration the needs of our neighbors and their well-being and also our own labor needs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we take both those things and we have a porous but secure border. And they were just shocked. And I could tell that there had just been a lot of misinformation that they had received. And, you know, we we had a really good conversation. So I think some of it is we have to be gentle Mm -hmm. in our corrections with people. Nobody likes to be made to feel stupid. Mm -hmm. And often we can find that there's a lot of common ground. You know, when I was talking to that couple, I said, you know, I think you and I both agree that immigrants are human beings Mm -hmm. and they're parents who love their children just like we are. They are uh, brothers, sisters, you know, children. Um, They're people, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, we can agree on that. And we did. We both agreed on that, which is important. So we talked, so we found some common ground. Mm. And then I just asked them some questions. And so, you know, and then I offered some correction where there was misinformation. And I I tried to do it in a way that was gentle. Mm -hmm. So we found this common ground. I asked them questions. I tried to respond in a way that was kind Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, gentle but also with the truth, you hmm. know, because there's so much misinformation. I see so many memes out there that are so, yeah. you know, false, oh my you know? Goodness, yes. And so I think that's a great way to start. You know, I asked them a lot of curious questions and one of them was, 
So tell me how you learned about immigration. You know, where, where where do you think your views come from? And, you know, what sources do you read and what news channels do you tune into? And just to see where where they were coming from. And, you know, I don't I can't tell you, oh, they changed their minds and they're pro-immigrant after our conversation. Yeah. But what I really hope and what I really prayed after that encounter was that they would go from that conversation and, and, you know, I let them know there's a great information on immigration from the American Immigration Council, mm-hmm. from the National Immigration Forum. And these are independent think tanks. They're not affiliated with any party. And I really encourage you to read, you know, a lot of what they have to say about immigration. And, and I hope that they did, you know, that was my prayer for them. But We have to recognize that for all of us, changing our mind on any significant issue, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be, it was a journey. It didn't happen in one conversation, and it certainly did not happen from being called an idiot or a racist or a bigot Mm -hmm. by someone. And so we were all kind of loved into change and transformation, and that's the way we have to approach other people as well. Yeah. It's find that commonality, right, between mm-hmm. our stories, between our humanity, between, yeah, I think when we give other people time or I wish that, you know, if other people gave me time, I think maybe at the end of the conversation, we would realize that maybe we're not, we're not that different after all, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, and I think that's the beauty of the dialogue, which I, I, I really long for and, and, I, and I see, you know, that there are many other people also longing for it. And I think we're, we're striving to be better, yeah, in conversation. And so, so your book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. Anything else that we should know about this book? It's available on Amazon or yes. wherever books are sold. <laughs> great, great, great. Well, Karen, thank you so much for being with us. And just thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your insight and your work. Uh, where can people find your work? Yes. So I have a website, Karen-Gonzalez.com. And I'm also really active on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. Great. Again, Karen, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. And to our audience, thank you for listening. If there's anything that stood out to you from this conversation, we'll post links about it in the show notes. So make sure to check those out. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Peacemakers. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, go ahead and hit subscribe. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and share this episode with your friends through Instagram stories on Spotify. And most importantly, don't forget to join us for our next exciting episode. Peacemakers podcast is made possible by Border Perspective. Border Perspective partners with ministry leaders and organizations to host conversations on social and biblical issues that help equip the church to love our neighbor the way God intended. You can also join Border Perspective on a service learning trip along the southern border. These trips are immersive, educational, and intentionally place you into the lives of immigrant leaders serving families on the South Texas and Mexico border. To learn more about how you can join Border Perspective's peacemaking mission, visit Border Perspective. Dot org.